Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. And, uh, man, I, li- I like it when you get loud. So if you want to get loud today, you can totally get loud. Uh, but it's going to be a good service. I mean, I believe God's going to change your life. Uh, but we're going to read out of Colossians 1, verse 15, just a few verses. And uh, if you brought your Bibles, you can turn there really quick. If not, how many of you love technology? We have technology up behind me, and uh, we'll have the verses up behind me on the screen. This is chapter 1, verse 15, and Paul is writing about Jesus. How many love Jesus? I like it. I like the mighty roar of the lion. Come on. He is. Everyone say, he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created. Could you say all things? All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Not just some things, but all things. And in him, all things what? So Jesus is the glue, right, of the range of things that we know to be the space-time continuum. Let's move on. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Everyone say the beginning. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, could you say that, in him? In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all all things, which I love this. This is the heart of Jesus for the people, and I'll talk about this kind of the end of my talk here today. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, and you, point to your neighbor and say, and you, and you who once were alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable. How many stable people do we have here this morning? We got a few of you. All right, we got a lot of unstable people here. (laughs) Lord have mercy. Stable and steadfast. Let me. Better question, how many of you want to be stable and steadfast? That's a better question. Come on. We, we all have a little instability in our lives, and all the people said, amen. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Could you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray? Father, I thank you for your grace. Just thank you for being here today. Lord, I I can sense it. There's some hungry people here this morning. Lord, we we don't want just another talk. We want you, Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that your word is, it is alive. Lord, let, let your word change us, challenge us, speak to us. Lord, we 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 don't want to be any other place than here this Sunday morning. So we love you, Jesus. 
I bless all the people here, and we bless the mighty Dallas Cowboys. And all God's people said, amen, amen. I want to kind of give you just a quick story about my my upbringing. I, I had the best parents in the world, Pastor Ken and Connie, and we lived in Portland. Uh, anyone uh, from Portland? Maybe a few of you. Okay, so we lived in Portland until I was seven. And uh, I was told, actually this is about five years ago, I was told that like between the ages of one and five by my aunt that as she observed 30 years of kids, that I was the worst kid she had ever seen. So I'm like, oh, thank you, Aunt Jenny. That's just so awesome. Thank you for that encouragement. She's like, no, 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 no. I just, I, I want to like show you how far you've come, right? <laughs> and uh, my mom, I, and my mom, she, she attested to, I don't know if it's like, how many redheads do we have here? Right, we got a few redheads. All right, it's just, I don't know if it's like our genetic profile, but we are fiery. And we got a fiery temp, uh, temper. And uh, man, if things don't go, to, go our way, we, we will let the whole world know. That we're in charge, the 2% of us, but we're going to take over the world one day, right? Anyways, um, my mom, she would actually cry herself to sleep at night. Um, she, she even told me, these are kind of, this is how I interpreted what she told me, that she felt like um, she was raising a psychopath. And no joke, she would actually pray that God would um, keep me from jail, from prison time, and uh, she wasn't sure that I was going to make it as, as an adult, but God got a hold of my heart and uh, changed my life. But I remember one story, we were downtown Portland, and how many of you know as, as kids, uh, your, your whole life revolves around your mom, uh, you know, your parents, but in particular your mom. So your mom is your ultimate reference point, everything you do, your existence uh, is in relation to your mom, she is your true north, everyone say true north. So my mom was my true north. I knew it, um, sort of knew it, uh, but we were in this mall downtown Portland, and we got in an elevator, and uh, we went down a couple, um, not a couple feet, but we just went down, okay? We went down, and the doors opened, and I'm trying to think this morning, and so we came out of this little box thing we call elevators, right? Go with me. And so my mom had little Trace. Tracy was a little baby. She cried all the time. She still cries a lot. <laughs> And then uh, Rochelle was, uh, so I remember, I have a vivid memory. So Tracy, she's, she's uh, my mom's holding Tracy. Rochelle's right next to my mom. She would have been like two and a half, three years old. I would have been like four and a half, five years old. And uh, I don't know what it was, but I was throwing a fit in the elevator, and I was refusing to go out of the elevator. To this day, I, I hate going to elevators or being inside of elevators. When my mom was outside of the elevator, she's pleading with me to stop throwing a fit. I wasn't listening to her, and so the elevator door shut on me. So I go up um, a ways. I come out in the middle of the mall. At this point, I'm crying my face off. People, it's weird. I just, I saw a lot of people, and they, they didn't, they thought I was probably an alien kid. Just so you know, I had crazy red hair, and I had like buck teeth, and my ears were like sideways, just going out this way. So I'm sure I'm, I, I probably had that ugly cry, and uh, people were a little intimidated by the alien redhead kid. So no one was helping me but two gentlemen. So two gentlemen came up, uh, the long and short of it, um, and I could share more about this story. They actually knew my name. It was a weird thing. They, my full name is Kristen. You can't call me Pastor Kristen. My name is Chris. Can I get an amen to that? They go, Kristen. Um, how can we help you? And I kind of explained my situation. And I remember in that moment, 
Being overwhelmed, I'm disoriented, I'm feeling lost. Again, my ultimate reference point is my mom. At that point, she helps me put my pants on, right? She helps me brush my teeth. Um, my mom goes to the grocery store, I go to the grocery store, right? My mom's not gonna like give me the keys of the car and say, okay, hey, five-year-old, uh, hey, you wanna have a good day? Go walk the dog, get in the car, uh, take him to the park, you can do whatever you want, right? That, you, you, parents just don't simply do that. Um, as kids, our ultimate true north are our parents. And in that moment, I had lost my reference point. I didn't know where I was in relation to, to my mom. I didn't know if she left me. I don't know if she was mad at me. Um, again, I basically I didn't know what was up and down and sideways. Again, just experiencing this profound sense of disorientation. And so these, the, these two gentlemen, they helped me. They brought me down. We found my mom. And, you know, I remember embracing my mom and repenting. Good news that next week, I did get in trouble at action night. It was totally my cousin's fault, Wendy Perez. She got me in trouble, right? Uh, but I remember I had, I had a come to Jesus moment. I'm like, I got to get my life right. I got this fiery temper. And I remember giving my life to Jesus. It was really a sequence of events, of, of events that drove me to Jesus. And I gave my life to Jesus. And the reason why I'm sharing this story, because I do feel like we're in this interesting cultural moment where people really do feel lost, like me. Like, I felt profoundly lost. I didn't even know what to do. I was a five-year-old kid in the middle of downtown Portland. I didn't know where my mom was. I didn't know what True North was, which was my, my parents, right? And so everything for me in that moment was upside down. I do think there are a lot of people in our world that have this strange sense of lostness. We're talking about this New York Times magazine, um, I think in 2015, came out with an article uh, that was titled, The Year We Obsessed Over Our, our Identity. And uh, the whole article was about this cultural migration, like we're rethinking what it means to be human, uh, we're changing definitions, we'll talk about that later. We're just, you know, we're, people, people are scared, people are afraid. It does feel like over the last probably two years, that we're devolving into this dystopian nightmare and people are scared out of their mind? How many of you feel like the world feels a little bit apocalyptic? Maybe just a few of you. I've, it does have this feeling that the apocalypse is right around the corner. To quote a great American movie straight out of the 90s, birds' heads are falling off everywhere. And those of you who laughed, you should be ashamed. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're the holy ones here today. But people, come on, I just, I've talked to a lot of people. People are confused, people are lost, and they need a map. I think we need a map. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what's our map? Well, this poem functions as a map of the cosmos. We're not talking about interstellar travel, right? We're not talking about colonizing Mars. We're not talking about Carl Sagan's, like, trip into the cosmos. But Paul does give us a map. Everyone say a map. And at the center of this mapping of the cosmos, everything from supernovas to, man, quarks to little boys named Quincy's, right, to, man, from Starbucks, planet Earth, and Saturn and Jupiter, at the very center of all things is Jesus. Jesus is at the very center. He is our true north. As Christians, man, if you want to negotiate the 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 difficult cultural terrain of trying to figure things out, but not just negotiate some of the difficulties 
that will confront the church over the next 15, 20 years. But if you want to live a victorious life, man, you got to know who you are in relation to who Jesus is. It's so important. I do believe that the next 20 years are going to be the greatest years of the church. I think our best years are in front of us, not behind us. Can I get an amen? I know we're going to go through difficult times. I know people are going to say funny things. I know Christians are going to make stupid decisions. But Jesus is in charge. And I believe our best years are in front of us. And I think the world is going to be shocked by the grace and the miraculous power that flows out of the church. So I think you should get ready. But as Christians, we got to familiarize ourselves with this map. Because I do think there's a lot of Christians that um, are confused. I think a lot of Christians are maybe scared. Maybe some of you have a problem with worry. Maybe some of you are are, um, addressing maybe a very difficult situation in your life. What is the answer to that? How can I help you today? How can St. Paul help us? help us. Well, let's go through the map. Paul is beginning to shape this this cosmic map for us. Again, Jesus is at the very center. Uh, We are complete in Jesus. You don't need anything more. Uh, What you need, let me say it this way, you don't need more um, strength. Uh, You don't need more wisdom. You already have all of that in Jesus. What you need more of is Jesus. And so that's kind of the premise that, that, that underpins this, this poem, which, again, is designed as a mapping of the cosmos. Again, we're not talking about colonizing Mars, and if that happens in 30, 40, 50 years, like Elon Musk's vision, so be it. We are talking about, again, Jesus is at the center of it all. And we begin, the first thing that Paul tells us is that Jesus, in this map, is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. In the ancient Near East, uh, kings would take statues. Everyone say statues. They would take statues and place statues throughout their territory or their domain. And those statues would represent uh, or function as images of the authority of the king. So obviously Paul is playing off this kind of image-bearing motif related to what kings did with uh, statues, but he's making a very radical claim. Jesus is the image of God. Now think about these, again, these young uh, Christians who are living in Colossae, whom Paul is writing to. They were formerly pagan. Uh, They grew up uh, listening to their oral tradition, the, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and uh, they, they knew what the gods were like. The gods, Zeus, was very immoral. Zeus didn't care about justice. Many times, you didn't even know where you stood in, in relationship to the gods. The gods were whimsical. The gods really didn't care about creation. Maybe some days they liked you, but then other days they didn't like you. And so pagan theology, if you will, pay, a pagan portrait of the gods was terrifying. They had this terrifying vision of who the gods were. What Paul is saying to this young Christian church is, you got to take all your definitions of divinity and allow them to be reshaped around Jesus. Because Jesus is the image of God. I do think, um, just to speak practically, I think a lot of us take our fuzzy misconceptions of God, God's remote, God doesn't care for me, where was God when 
when that thing happened to me or I went through this issue and um, I felt like God abandoned me. And what we tend to do is we project our experience onto this map uh, that Paul gives us about Jesus. I think we do that all the time. And we try to force our definitions of Jesus into this weird kind of fuzzy portrait that we've grown up with God. you got to stop doing that right now. You can't live that way. You can't embrace those weird cosmic perceptions that you have of God, like he's somewhere out there in space, right? He doesn't really care about me. What you need to do is you need to take a good, long, loving look at who Jesus is and then allow that portrait to reframe. Everyone say reframe. Reframe your perception of divinity. And this is why I love going, can I be passionate here today? This is why I love going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because we get this revolutionary portrait of who God is. God loves justice. And God's version of justice is compassion. And you find, I love it, and these are just random stuff that's coming to the top of my head here, but you find in the Gospels where Jesus comes to Peter's mother-in-law, and she has a high fever, and he simply heals her. Why? Because she, he, he loves Peter's mother-in-law. Why, why wouldn't you let it run its course? Why, wouldn't you, why is that kind of a big deal? Jesus, when you're running the kingdom, you got to do big things. No, he cares for people with fevers. I love it. And then we have all these wonderful stories of Jesus is out in the wilderness, and his disciples come to him, and he's preaching to all the people, and uh, he's moved. It says that Jesus is moved with compassion for the people uh, because they're like sheep without a shepherd, and they're all hungry. And what does Jesus do? He, he smiles, turns to his disciples, and says, give me some five loaves and some two fish. And he breaks it. He multiplies it. He feeds 20,000 people. Why? Because Jesus cares about hungry people. There's a leper that's been excluded his whole life because of the purity world. He, he has leprosy, and so he can't be a part of the worshiping community. And so he's essentially a half person in this ancient setting. And Jesus comes and subverts the whole purity world, touches his body, and says, be healed to this man who was excluded and written off by everybody. Like, if you want to know how God rules the entire universe, take a look at this picture of Jesus healing this man with leprosy. God runs the universe not through violence, not through the exercise or show of power and force, and I'm going to rough them up, and I'm, I'm going to maybe send some lightning bolts and, and, and just prove that, man, I'm in charge. No, God runs the universe through love. I love this. He, Jesus actually goes to a very Greek area, which for a Jewish man would have been outlawed. He goes to a cemetery, and there's a man who has practiced self-mutilation for years, disfigured, filled with legions of demons. All disciples run away. They're cowards. Jesus stays as this man rushes him, and he simply heals this Greek man uh, who everyone else had written off why? Because Jesus runs this world through love and through compassion. He is the image of the invisible God. 
You can't find the image of God by going simply to the Himalayan mountains and checking out a beautiful sunset, which would be cool, but you can't. You can't find the image of God in your loved ones, which some people try to do. Uh, You and I are not the image of the invisible God. You can't find the image of God in a fort. Crazy story. About 10 years ago, I was reading an article from a philosopher, and he said at the age of five that he, uh, he looked at this fork at the dinner table, and he instantly came to the realization uh, that uh, uh, he knew everything about the cosmos, and somehow the fork functioned as an image bearer. Now, you can't find who God is by simply observing a fork. You can't go to a philosophy book, and I love philosophy. Can I get an amen to that? I love some of the existential philosophers. I love Kierkegaard. Some of the things I disagree with him. But you can't find the image of the invisible God simply by reading a book or seeing a beautiful sunset. You find the image of God when you take a long, loving look at who Jesus is. I love it. Then we come to the second thing. Paul is shaping or building this cosmic map. And he he says in verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. We're not talking about birth order. We're talking about priority and rank. I love this. Paul's engaging an ancient kind of ranking system. He's basically saying Jesus is before all things. The logic here is really simple. Jesus is first and everything flows out of that. Let me do it. I don't know why I'm doing this, but just go with the flow. I didn't do this for service. You can thank me later. Jesus is first, and everything, when you get this sequence right, Jesus first, the center of it all, right? Everything runs through him, then everything flows out of that. Paul is basically, this is good old-fashioned um, Jewish-styled um, monotheism. He's essentially saying Jesus is in charge of everything. He ranks over everything. I love ranking systems. I'm sure you might like ranking systems, right? Maybe you go to Bleacher Report. Maybe you go to ESPN. You check out some of the rankings, like who's the best team? Seattle Seahawks, typically, what, 31, 32, right? Cowboys, top five. I just wanted to make sure you're awake, right? This is essentially what what Paul is doing. He's, He's ranking Jesus. Like everything else is relative to Jesus. Jesus is number one. Interesting story. Uh, there was a young girl who uh, was being counseled by a pastor. She was 17 years old, and she had a problem with boys. She's like, her biggest issue in life was, why don't all the boys like me? They like my friend, they like my sister, but they don't like me. And so they're having this conversation, and the pastor asked her, are you a Christian? And her response was, how does that have anything to do with boys liking me? So the pastor was like, he had an epiphany. He's like, okay, we, we have a problem here. What she was doing, I mean, there's so many things wrong with that that I would love to comment. But the epiphany was she is ranking affection from boys over the affection of Jesus. I'm sorry, man, in a relationship, let's say you're 17 and you got a little crush on Joe. Man, he, he, he wears the right denim. He has shiny teeth good hair. Can I just tell you something? The age of 65, 70, he ain't going to look the same. (laughs) Joe ain't going to look the same. Maybe Joe Martinez, he says eternally young, but not every other Joe. Right? She, what she had done, she had ranked Joe 
or the affection of boys over Jesus. And she was getting everything confused. This is just simple, good old-fashioned idolatry. And when you, when you get first things wrong, you get your life twisted out of shape. C.S. Lewis, 50 years ago, said, hey, man, if you put thir- first things first, you get second things thrown in. But if you put second things first, man, you, get, you lose first things and second things. You lose it all. So when we say placing Jesus first, well, what are we saying? We're saying we're going to build our identity or I don't really like that word, we're going to build our self-understanding and who we are around Jesus and then let everything flow out of that. I think, man, I think the problem, the reason why Christians get confused is they're elevating their dogs, their cats, their teams, their vocation, their husbands, their spouses, right, their wives, their kids above Jesus himself. And life will never work that way. You will live a life of disillusionment and disappointment. My wife knows one thing about me. I am imperfect. And if she puts me at the center of her universe, if I'm her chief end, I'm gonna disappoint her. It's gonna be tragic for her. My wife is not number one. My kids are not number one. My parents are not number one. This church is not number one. You're not number one. The Dallas Cowboys and Jerry Jones, it ain't number one, right? My dog is not number one. Living in the North End is not number one. My vocation is not number one. Who's number one? Jesus is number one. Jesus is number one. He is the firstborn of creation. So my question is, what do you want? Do you want to settle for some cheap, a cheap, parody of what only God can give you? Like so many times, I mean, let me say this, this is a bit of a digression, but as, as humans, we, and we do this so many times, we, um, we desire the praise of the praiseworthy. Like it's one thing, and we can be honest here today, it's one thing to have someone compliment you that you don't know. I'm sure you'd be like, oh, thank you, that's kind of an encouragement. And I'm, I'm sure you appreciate that, but that's not like what you long for. It's okay that somebody uh, that you don't know, a stranger, said some nice things about you. What you really want is someone that you look up to to tell you, man, you, you're the best. It's what I long for my, my mom and my dad growing up. I just wanted my dad coming to me, and he did it all the time. Son, yeah, you, you, you sucked it up this weekend, but I still love you, and you're the best. We want the praises of the praiseworthy. It's what we long for. I, I got to be honest with you. If Steph Curry walked down right here and said, Chris, I want, I want to be your best friend. Let's exchange numbers. Let's text. I want to take you to ice cream. Let's kind of hang out for six months. We're going to be best friends. I'm going to show you how to play the game of basketball. I'd say, peace. I'd drop the mic and say, see you later. Kel, dad, can you take over the church? Steph and I are going to be best friends. Why? Because I want the praise of the praiseworthy. You have it, though. You got the love of the one who is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of creation. He doesn't change. He doesn't change. We're transient. He's not. Amen. Paul continues to build this map. He says, all things were created through Jesus. I mentioned this before. Everything runs through Jesus. I know it kind of feels like Elon Musk, right, interplanetary travel 
it's like this is so abstract, but and I know it's very poetic in its structure, but it's important that we understand what Paul is doing. He's saying Jesus is our true north. And everything runs through him. Everything you experience in life, as I mentioned before, supernovas to the San Antonio Spurs, right? Quarks to Starbucks to uh, life as we experience, how we feel, what we've experienced in the past, what's happening in our political world from ISIS to France to just name something. Think of something right now. There's nothing that lies outside the range of the rule of Jesus because it's all been created through him. So this is why we need, and I'm talking to myself, we need to stop worrying. Because what is worry? What, what, what lies at the heart of worry? Worry is an insistent belief that there are some things in fact that lie outside of this cosmic map. The arrogance. I got to tell myself, Chris, stop being arrogant. Right? When you're worrying, stop being arrogant. What you're feeling right now does not lie outside of the power of Jesus or the sphere of God's sovereign, loving rule. When we worry, we're colluding with this tragic misconception of the cosmos. We assume maybe Jesus is just the center of a few things. We forget that he is the center of the cosmos itself. Everything runs through him. So the way you overcome worry, is it okay if we talk like this? The, over, the, the way you overcome worry is not by resisting it. And by resisting, I mean um, you, try, you try to tell yourself, I can't feel this way, right? Like, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to feel this way. The more you try to resist by telling yourself that you're not going to feel worry, the more you're going to reinforce it because you're going to be so preoccupied with worry. How do you deconstruct the power of worry in your life? you got to change your focus. you got to get back to this poem. you got to get back to your true north. If you're out in the middle of the wilderness and Sasquatch is hunting you down and there are rivers that you have to ford and mountains that you have to climb and you need to find your way out, you're not going to simply be able to do that in your own mighty intellect. You can only do that if you have a map. Are, are, you, are you living and inhabiting that map? Jesus is the center of it all. If, if you can do that on a daily basis, you will break the power of anxiety and fear and confusion. Come on. And all these things that affect us as Christians. The reason why some of you have no joy is because you just worry your way through life. Let me just say, worry is a form of meditation. Worry is not some metaphysical thing that happens to your body. Worry is you rehearsing Wrong information over and over and over. And this is why the Bible tells us, man, you got to meditate on God's word day and night. You got, in other words, you got to meditate on the right information. Get your head, point your finger at your head right now, get your head in this map. Come on. Jesus, he continues, Jesus holds all things together, not just a few things, 
but he holds all things. He sustains all things. He's not going to leave creation. He's not going to annihilate creation. Jesus, even though it does feel like our world is falling apart at the seams, even though it does feel like, as I mentioned, birds' heads are falling off and we're right at the, the, this juncture of apocalyptic, I don't know, nuclear holocaust, whatever, event. Jesus still holds all things. Christian Smith, um, I mentioned this before, 15 years ago, he's a sociologist. He said, young adults in the church primarily are moralistic, therapeutic deists. In other words, they think the Christian story is just simply about um, being nice, doing good things, got to pay your taxes, don't hurt cats. Can I get an amen? And of course, be a Dallas Cowboy fan. But then second, they're therapeutic. People, Christians just think that God is like some cosmic therapist and there's nothing wrong with therapists. Simply God is reduced to um, making us happy. Of course, God wants you to feel good about yourself, but that's not what the Christian story is about. And then many young adults have in their mind that somehow Jesus is like way out in space, 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 right? That maybe over a lifetime, Jesus, if you pray really hard and you live a really good life, he'll come and intervene this space-time continuum. But he just exists outside of it. It's just the wrong picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is the center of it all. That means he's present right now. He's not somewhere out there. He's, he's present. He's with us. And one pastor, on, on looking at some of the findings of Christian Smith, he came to the conclusion the reason why so many young adults project this moralistic, therapeutic, deistic worldview onto the Christian story is because their father abandoned them, left them. And because their father was not the sustainer of all things and denied them their childhood. And maybe some of you have experienced this here this morning. They have extrapolated this anti-biblical picture of God onto Jesus. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He has not abandoned us. He is a good father. Can I get an amen? And if today the good news, I'm going to pray for you. If your life is falling apart at the seams, if your marriage is falling apart at the seams, if your job is falling apart at the seams, if you hate your boss and everything just feels like it's just, you're, you're miserable and you feel disoriented, man, good news. Jesus still holds your life together. So all you have to do is give it to him. You give everything to him. And you just watch what Jesus will do in your life. I just read in this leadership podcast, and I think this is important uh, as a corollary to what I'm talking about, uh, this uh, leadership guy, he basically said, we, uh, we overestimate what we can do in the short run, and we underestimate what God can do over a life of faithfulness. And I think that's, man, take that and apply it to Jesus being the sustainer of all things. Man, if you don't, man, if you don't see maybe God's hand right now, you just, you just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Don't be an American Christian. Come on. Stop buying into that consumeristic model. Wait. Wait. Be patient. 
15 years from now, you're going to be a completely stinking new person. 20 years from now, you're going to see the, the amazing miracles that God has done in your life. You wait a little bit longer, 30, 40, 50 years, God will sustain your life. So Jesus, or excuse me, Paul continues to build this cosmic map, and he says, Jesus is the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. Pastor Ken and Connie are not the head of the church. Kelly's not the head of the church. Uh, our uh, translocal elders are not the head of the church. Our elder team is not the head of the church. Our executive team is not the uh, head of the church. We have the best staff in the world, but they are not the head of the church. Jesus is. And, man, I just know it's not fashionable to talk about this because, come on, we probably have all experienced weird Christians or dysfunctional churches. And so to say that Jesus is the head of the church, man, that's hard to stomach. That's just my personal opinion. I've been growing up. I had the best pastors, the best mom and dad. But, man, we had some doozy of experiences with people. So how can we say Jesus is the head of the church when it just seems like there's so many rogue elements, right? We got red chairs, rogue elements. Like, and, and what, what we want to do is we almost want to, like, think of Jesus being the head of the church as, like, some sort of disembodied spirit head floating somewhere out in space. Okay, Jesus must be the head of the church, but he's way out there, and we're all just making a big mess of our lives. That's just, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, yeah, there's a lot of people are making mistakes. People do dumb things. Christians say the darndest things. Some of you like the Oakland Raiders. I'm trying to get you out of that, right? We, we all have rogue elements that, that shape our lives, right? But Jesus is still the head of it. Jesus will bring to completion in the church what he started 2,000 years ago in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus is perfecting us. So if Jesus is still the head of the church, we probably should watch how we talk about the church. I'm not saying we can't identify problems. I'm not saying we can't speak the truth in love. The problem is most people don't know how to speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in truth. But our truth is, is reductionistic, and we arrogantly think we know everything. My God, please, we need to practice silence. Can I get an Amen. Lord, have mercy. This is what I love. My favorite thing to tell my kids is just keep your mouth shut. I think that's a word for us. Jesus is the head of the church. What does that mean? He, he's running it. I know it. sometimes it doesn't look like it, but he is. United States of America. We have a lot of wonderful Americans here, right? A lot of good, how many good Idahoans do we have here? You like to fish. You like to hunt, right? You like to go hunt. Sasquatch, whatever we like to do. We got some good Idahoans. We have some good Americans. But America will not last forever. And I love my nation. But the church will. Why? Because the church is designed by God to bring the kingdom of God to our world. And because Jesus is the head of the church, the church will far outlast America. If America blows up 500 years from now, we still have the church. And Jesus is running it. This also doesn't mean, and people make the opposite mistake, that Christ equals the church. I don't believe that. I do believe we still make messes. 
Jesus is perfect. Jesus doesn't make messes. Can I get an amen to that? But we got to find this tension. Yes, there are mistakes that we all make. There are things we have to work on. Can I get an amen? But Jesus is still the head of the church. Jesus, Paul continues, is the beginning, the prototype of God's new world. Easter, you have to look at Easter as not an ending, but a beginning or a launching of God's brand new world. The gospel or new creation as we talk about it or the Christian story is not good advice. It's not, it's not a self-help thing. It's not, I'm just going to make you a better person so you can be better to your family, right? The gospel is good news. The good news is that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the facts about this planet and this creation have totally altered. Jesus is running the show. New creation is being launched. You and I, if we make a decision to follow Jesus, can be a part of this launching new creation thing. Can I get an amen? And Jesus is the prototype of God's new world. He's the prototype. What does that mean? That means what God the Father did to Jesus on Easter morning to his body, God the Father will also do to our body. God will also do to the material world. God will make all things brand new. He's not going to take the material world and throw it into a cosmic dumpster fire. It's important that we keep this in mind. Jesus is not about the annihilation of the planet. He's about the restoration of the planet. And you and I can be a part of it. Amen? But he's the beginning, not the end. Oh, I love this. And all the lion growls say amen to that. I don't know what I'm talking about. Let's continue. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the fullness of God. I love this. He's not an enlightened religious leader. He's not your spiritual guru. He's not a wandering rabbi who would, who would throw some nice thoughts or homespun wisdom and parables about the life of the kingdom or life before God. Jesus is the embodiment of God himself. He is fully God, and he's fully man. He's fully human, fully God. Well, how do you know? Like, I've talked to some, some scholars, and they say, well, this is kind of like retrograde. Um, Paul is projecting back into the consciousness of Jesus divinity, and that's not true. The early church, maybe a hundred years after the life of Jesus, kind of made up this thing about the divinity of Jesus. Well, when you go to the Beatitudes, and Jesus is teaching people about life of the kingdom, he says this, you have heard it said, he's talking about the Torah, you have heard it said, but I say to you. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is placing his authority on the same level as the Torah. And can I ask you a question? Who can do that? God. Next week, if I get up here and I say, guys, the Bible has said this, but I say to you, I would recommend you, you get your kids, you get your husbands, you get your, your whatever, and you just leave, right? I'm placing myself on the same level is God's word. And that's reserved for God alone. Jesus is the fullness of divinity. We continue. Jesus reconciled. Paul again, again, is building this map. 
has reconciled all things through his death. This is, as I land this plane for the next five minutes, this is the heart of Jesus for the people. Jesus reconciled all things, not some things, all things through his death. I've talked about this, but this is an allusion to the Genesis story we find in Genesis 2 and 3. We know the fall um, with Adam and Eve and the rebellion against God. It created this radical dislocation between heaven and earth. It affected the relationship between God and, and humans, not just God and humans, but all of creation. Uh, wobbled under the weight of cosmic evil. It was just out of joint until the time of Jesus. It's in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that heaven and earth come together. That you and I, Paul, Paul tells us that you and I were enemies of the gospel. It wasn't, it wasn't like we're just kind of good people um, and we're just maybe a little bit ignorant. No, he, he defines us as enemies. We're hostile in our mind. We, we don't think straight. We, we curve in on ourselves. And Jesus goes all the way to his death because he wanted to reconcile enemies. This is the heart of Romans chapter 5, right? That man, man, a good man might die for maybe a family member, but God sent his son. And he went all the way to the cross for those who hated him, those who were broken and destitute, those who wanted nothing to do with God. Jesus, I love this, Jesus practiced enemy love. And he broke the power of enmity. He broke the power of hostility in us. We were at war, cosmic war. And in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, heaven and earth come together. They overlap. Creation now is not schizophrenic. Creation now is not wobbling or limping under the power of evil because Jesus through his death brought healing. It was like spiritual, as one New Testament scholar said, it was like spiritual shock waves that went throughout creation. And you and I can be a part of this. This is Jesus for the people. Jesus loves the racist. Jesus loves the psychopath. Jesus loves those, man, who hate him. It's easy, Jesus said, to love somebody who loves you. That's not the gospel. The gospel's not, oh, Jesus coming to planet Earth and giving his life for people he really liked. I'm sure, man, there were days he just could not stand Peter. But he gave his life for those who wanted nothing to do with him. This is the heart of Jesus for the people. How do we we bring to bear justice in our world? It's through this kind of love. It's unconditional love of our enemy and those who are hostile towards us. Why do we do this as Christians? It's because Jesus did it for us. Amen? And this is what we're going to practice. Don't get too, too excited on me. Jesus for the people is loving, not just a few people, not just some moral exemplars, but it's all about loving everyone on creation. For some of you, you need to love some Democrats a little bit more. Some of you need to love some Republicans more. Some of you need to start praying for your president. You don't like him, but you need to start praying for him. Some of you don't like your coworker, your boss. Are you kidding me? You can't stand him right? And, and you're, just, you're just obsessed about what he's done to you and his injustice. Why don't you act like a Christian and pray for him? 
and love him or her. Because that's the heart of Jesus for the people. We have a calling to express that and give expression to that. So what's our takeaway? Verses 21 and 22, it's pretty simple. Paul says, um, hey, you were hostile in your mind. You weren't thinking straight. And he uses one of his favorite phrases, but now. Everyone say, but now. This way, but now through the death of Jesus, you're now a son and daughter of the king. What is he doing? He's relocating these former pagans, now Christians, and he's putting them on this cosmic map. You were excluded. You were out of the picture. You were off the map. But through Jesus, you were a nobody. But through him, he placed you on this map through his reconciling death. Man. But now, the takeaway for us, this is how we keep our minds straight. This is how we, how we practice um, getting close to Jesus. I think it's important if we want to know our true north, if we want to keep inhabit this map and keep on thinking about this map, what we have to do, three simple things. We got to remember who Jesus is. We got to remember who we are. And we got to remember who we were before Jesus. Let me say that again. We got to remember who Jesus is. But now, right? This is who Jesus is. But now, remember who you are. This is now your standing in Jesus. But now, remember you were like this way. Man, you, you, you did this. You lived this way, right? And some of you might be frustrated. Man, I just, I wish I was further along the road of progress, you might be frustrated in relationship with God, but here's one thing you can do. You can practice remembering, hey, you might not be, and we talk about this a lot, and a lot of preachers talk about this, and it's kind of a cliche, but you might not be where you're at, but the good news is you're not where you used to be. Remember, and this is what Paul's essentially saying, hey, I want you to remember who Jesus is every single day. This is how you get familiar with this map. You gotta remember who Jesus is. He's the center of the cosmos. You gotta remember now who you are in Christ, and you gotta remember who you were before Jesus. You see, I think the problem with most, if, if there is a problem with Christians, is not that we need more victory in life. I don't think our problem is we need more achievement or we need more strategy. I think what we need is more assurance. And how do we get that assurance? We get it by remembering who we are in Christ. The Bible, the most frequent used phrase in the Bible is remember. Remember, remember. I, I do think maybe, and, and I don't want to speak for anybody in this room, but I know my problem uh, in the past in terms of trying to figure out where I'm at on this cosmic map and who I am in Christ and identity-making stuff and self-knowledge and self-awareness is that I forgot who I was. I think we have a, a forgetting problem. Remember, some of you have probably seen this movie, 50 First Dates, Drew Barrymore. Never seen it. Someone told me about it. Anyways, let's move on. But remember, she forgot about 50 times about her first date with Adam Sandler. Kept on forgetting. She couldn't transfer short-term memory into this long-term body of knowledge. I do think some Christians struggle with this. 
And it could be here today, some of you have been really praying and asking God to speak to you and God's been silent. It could be the reason why God is silent is because he's already told you who you are. He's already told you what he wants you to do. And you've simply forgotten what's already been spoken over you. And God is silent because he wants you to practice the art of remembering. Remember when? 1996 when I changed your life. Remember in 2002 when you were going through that circumstance. Remember what I did then. Remember in 2011 when you were just destitute and you were broken and you were just confused about stuff and how I I spoke through that person and that person and I provided for your needs and I healed your kid and I healed your heart and I healed your mind. It's crazy, man. What God used to do, there's no use to do, right? But we, we conceive of like, well, God did that a long time ago. Well, what God did a long time ago, God is continuing to do in your life. And so we need to practice the art of remembering. Remember who Jesus is. Remember who you are. And remember who you were before Jesus. If you can do this every single day, every single day, you will live a life of victory because your heart will be filled with the assurance of Jesus himself. Can I get an amen? I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Thank you, Jesus. With your eyes closed, you'd say, Chris, I'm not on the map. Never made a decision to follow Jesus. i kind of been doing my own thing, but you, you've kind of read my mail today. I, that's what I feel. I feel lost. I feel overwhelmed. And maybe you don't even feel overwhelmed. Maybe you just know this is true for you. You haven't put Jesus first. Kind of been doing your own thing. And today you just, you have felt the presence of Jesus like you've never felt before. And you want to make a commitment to follow him. Which simply means putting Jesus first. Letting him take over your story. Letting him heal you, change you. It means saying yes to him and no to you, which is really the heart of repentance. Repent simply means to go beyond the mind you have. You're simply saying, God, okay, I've been kind of doing my own thing. I want you to take over my life right now. If you want me to pray with you, if you want to make a decision to follow Jesus with every eye closed, every head bowed, could you on the count of three raise your hand? One, two, three, anyone like that? Thank you. Keep your hands raised so I can see you. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.